financial needs of a business go beyond tax and attest services. That's why CTBK goes beyond accounting services and offers outsourced solutions through their affiliation with CFO Solutions Plus. These additional services allow clients to focus on their operational and long-term strategic goals. Trust CTBK's outsourced solutions to provide cost-effective, value-added financial services tailored to your company's needs. Call CTBK at 716-630-2400. Again, 716-630-2400. Or go to ctbk.com to learn more about CTBK's outsourced solutions. Welcome to another edition of Tim Graham and Friends brought to you by CTBK, CPAs and Business Consultants. I'm Tim Graham of The Athletic here with Jonah Bronstein of the New Bronstein Times. And um, we are on the verge of the Bills' last preseason game. So we have a lot to talk about there regarding the 53-man roster. The starters are going to play, which is a surprise to some, not very surprising to me. We can quibble as to whether it's right or wrong, but not a surprise. Um, some roster spots to highlight, of course. Uh, some stuff going on uh, with UB Athletics that we're going to get to. And, of course, uh, Rick Jenneret's passing last week. This is our first podcast uh, since then. I've spoken to a lot of people about Rick, and Joan has been writing about it, uh, following it. Uh, there's a, a tribute for Rick Jenneret, uh, Sunday night at 5 p.m. Or excuse me, is it Saturday or sa Sunday, right? Sunday, Sunday yeah, Sunday, five, yeah. Sunday at 5 at Key Bank Center uh, with um, some luminaries there, such as Lindy Ruff, Dale Hannon, Brad May, Marty Baran, some of the usuals, of course, like Rob Ray and Brian Duff, but uh, some others that you might not expect. James Patrick was on the list. Um, I'd have to take a look at it. Uh, but Jonah, we have this, uh, preseason game tomorrow against the Chicago bears. Uh, Sean McDermott announced this week that his starters were going to play some and, and, uh, analysts out there were borderline shocked to hear this. I did not find it surprising for a couple of reasons, but most notably, because Josh Allen is the type of guy who does not want to go into the season having performed as poorly as this offense has uh, without trying to get on track, just to get a little momentum, just to get a little peace of mind for nothing else. So I think that we're going to see Josh Allen maybe for a series. If they go down the field and score a touchdown on their first drive, then that's probably all we see out of Josh Allen. But if they go three and out, probably going to see him again. Uh, because that's how Josh Allen is wired. I think the Bills are perfectly fine with that. They like that he's wired that way. Their head coach is wired a bit that way. This is not the same as 2008 when the Bills went into their season opener having not scored a first, a first unit touchdown. Their starters had failed to score, if you remember. Trent Edwards, uh, they were putting in the no-huddle offense with Turk Schoenert. Uh, Chan Gailey was uh, game planning for preseason games, which is something you don't do because they were trying to muster some semblance of confidence in their first unit. Uh, it was uh, no, hang on, shit. It was it was Dick Duran, but it was Dick Duran. Yes, yeah. thank you. Yeah, thank we you. all Not know Chan the popcorn offense. I mean, I don't think it's quite that situation, but it's a little bit of a 
modern Bills version of that situation where the offense hasn't clicked yet in the preseason and the first team defense did some things against Indianapolis, but you know, you really haven't seen the Bills look like that juggernaut in the first series or two of the game that you would want to see from a Super Bowl contending team as the Bills had done in the past two previous preseasons. I think also it's going to be framed uh, or has been framed at one Bills drive as a little bit of punishment for the starters. Now they want to get out there and play and they want to perform, but I think Sean McDermott is also couching this as you guys haven't gotten anything done yet uh, here through these first two games. And if you had, maybe you'd be able to have this third game off, but you're not. So you're going to go back out there and you're going to play. But again, it's not, uh, it's not as though, these guys are going out there begrudgingly. I think that there is some high, highly competitive dudes who are really upset with how they have performed through these first two games, and they just want to have a, a little bit of uh, time to exhale and then hit the reset button and then get into the season without feeling anxious about uh, what they've put on tape uh, through the preseason. Yeah, and – Sean McDermott said something that was a bit of an afterthought, but he said every preseason is different. But I do think there's a lot of truth to that in the sense that these three-week preseasons are a bit of a new thing in the NFL, and there hasn't really been much of a consensus around the league of how teams handle each of the three games. Some teams play their starters in the second game. Some teams play them in the third game. Some teams have sat starting players for the entire preseason. And it used to be a lot more structured with the four games where starters would play about a quarter of the first two games and then about a half of the third game, not playing the fourth game. So the Bills starters, especially Josh Allen and Stephon Diggs and really some of the high-level players, haven't even played much more than a quarter so far. So there's still reps in preseason games to leave on the table. And the Bills, two years ago, played their starters for a half of the third preseason game. So I think they're still figuring out the best way to use preseason football to get ready for the season. And because the results weren't really very good in that second game, I think it makes a lot of sense to try to get the first team offense and defense back out there, both sides of the ball to get better rhythm and confidence before going into the opener. And a couple of things are forcing the Bills' hands in terms of a Matt Barkley injury might make it. So Josh Allen has to dress. And then if he's going to dress, you might as well get him out there a little bit to play. And the situation with middle linebacker and cornerbacks making it so it's a little hard to figure out which are the starters who don't play and which are the second teamers on those lines. So I think part of what the Bills are doing in practice and in games involves getting the starters out there to start the game and then progressing from there, even if they don't play very many snaps. I want to say that I totally butchered my comparison with the uh... – the 2009 Bills. I said 2008. It was the 2009 Bills. It was Dick Duran's last season, but I was correct. That was the season that they spent the entire summer establishing a no huddle offense and just couldn't figure out how to get it going. And the Turk Schonert was fired uh, on September 4th. So we're talking right before the season began, promoted Alex Van Pelt from quarterbacks coach to offensive coordinator. Um, Eric Studisville was the run game coordinator back then. That was the year that they brought in Terrell Owens. And uh, anyways, I wanted to go back and check, but I got I got crossed up a little bit when I pulled 2008 out of my butt, but 2009. Um, 
Matt Barkley had a chance to take command of this open quarterback competition that um, that Sean McDermott had hinted to uh, after the uh, first preseason game and totally flummoxed under duress a lot, some of it his own doing, holding on to the ball, threw way too many interceptions, got careless. And uh, really, where are we with the backup quarterback uh, position? Because Kyle Allen did not look particularly good against the uh, the um, Pittsburgh Steelers, third and fourth string players. And Matt Barkley didn't look good against the second stringers. And so I think we're we're maybe still in the in the same spot now than we were two weeks ago, wondering what's going to happen here and looking at other teams and who gets cut uh, right before the season begins. Who's going to be available to bring in as a backup quarterback? And I think it's funny. I don't know what it means, but I just think it's funny that we're going to see Josh Allen versus Nathan Peterman uh, on Saturday. I don't know what that means. Would Nathan Peterman be uh, the clear-cut number two quarterback uh, on the Bills roster right now? I don't think so. I do think it's going to be an interesting potential to be an interesting story in two ways in watching the game. And usually preseason games don't give these kind of storylines. But if Nathan Peterman has a good game against good performance against the Bills, that could be fun to watch and write about. And if Nathan Peterman throws four touchdowns to the other team against the Bills, second team defense that could be a very memorable preseason moment if something like that were to happen and uh, Tremaine Edmonds I don't know how many snaps or how much of the game he's going to play but seeing him in another uniform going against against the Bills with maybe the biggest undecided part of the Bills roster going into the final preseason game being that middle linebacker replacement for Edmonds will be an interesting thing to watch in a preseason game and I think kind of rare for a preseason game to offer that kind of real football intrigue. This is an interesting summer also in that the Bills don't have a ton of question marks regarding the 53-man roster. And we could talk about the different key positions like inside linebacker and that position and how it's shaken out, uh, the receiving room uh, underneath Stefan Diggs heading into training camp. The questions were, about Gabriel Davis, how he's going to look. I think he's looked fantastic. Uh, but also the rest of the receivers, Andy Isabella's added to the mix, and that creates a little bit of a spark in, among the fans as to uh, wondering uh, if he can make it. Uh, right tackle, of course. So there are key position battles, questions. But among the 53, who's going to make it, Who's gonna? who's not going to make it? Not a ton, but... In our pregame show tomorrow, and I'll give a little bit of a preview on it uh, without giving away what we're all entirely going to talk about. But one of the questions that we uh, pose to one another on the Buffalo Kickoff Live panel is uh, you're surprised to make the roster. Now, we each have to pick somebody different, and it's first come, first serve. Uh, but I think that the person who makes this roster that probably wasn't expected to at the start of the summer is Ryan Vandemark and his uh, his ability to play the tackle position and do a little bit uh, of other things in the wake of Brandon Shell's retirement and with uh, Tommy Doyle's season-ending knee injury, 
Uh, Ryan Vandemark is there standing tall, a practice squad player last year who has gotten some NFL experience. He's been in uh, on the field a handful of times in his in his short career, but he's somebody who's right place, right time, and probably makes this roster. Uh, I had to pick somebody else, and maybe we'll get to it because I I don't even think this person's going to make the team. But for the sake of the segment, I have to state the case. But your your thoughts, Jonah, on guys who we didn't think were going to make it, and looks like they they might. Well, I think all the names you mentioned and a few more kind of consist of the roster bubble, and and I could see certain combinations of Andy and Isabella making the team as a kick returner, maybe even Ty Johnson, this running back that they signed in the last week, sneaking onto the team as a kick returner. I think a lot of those guys will also be likely candidates for the practice squad. And really the bills are going to have about a, you know, closer to a 70 man roster by the time all of that shakes out. And most of the players that, you know, you might be thinking around the roster bubble end up in that 70 player mix. And maybe some of them don't, what I think the big surprise will be, because I don't know if any of those names really making the team would be a major surprise, maybe uh, Jonathan Kingsley to me because of the numbers game they have, the numbers they already have at defensive line. But I think there's going to be something creative done with one or two guys on short-term injured reserve and, and players that maybe we're not seeing this coming right away. But there are players that aren't practicing right now. Connor McGovern's hurt. We don't know how serious that is. Uh, projected starting offensive lineman that was the Bills make priority signing and free agency. Um, Dorian Williams at linebacker, Jordan Phillips maybe, or Tyler Matikevich, some of these guys with their injuries, maybe coming back into play after they've been activated from the pup list. And that would give the Bills more roster flexibility to keep a seventh receiver or an extra defensive lineman that you think they don't need, but now, or offensive lineman, because some of these guys are going to be on IR for the first few weeks of the season. And I think for me, the surprise will be if, A.J. Klein and Balen Spector both make the roster. All of the linebackers make the team because it seemed like there was a competition and somebody would get cut. But if between IR and the active roster, they find a way to keep all of these linebackers, along with Tyler Matikevich in a special teams role, would be surprising to me from where I thought we were going into training camp. Yeah, I just want to point out your Stephen A. Smith moment there, uh, Jonah. It is uh, Kingsley Jonathan, not Jonathan Kingsley. Not quite as bad as uh, Darcel Marius, but I just want to state for the record. Of course, that goes to show how big of a surprise it would be that he makes the team. Uh, we're not even sure of his name. And shame on his parents for giving him a last first name and a first last name that makes it difficult for us. But um, it's no Marcel Dar uh, Darcel Marius. And while we're on that, what are your thoughts on Stephen A. and uh, the the hot takers have had uh, quite a torrid week when coming up with Bill's topics. Uh, Stephen A. Smith says he has sources that uh, Stefan Diggs wants out and he's emphatic about it and then kind of walks it back after, after Stefan Diggs claps back on, on Twitter. And yes, I know it's X now, but I, you have to, every time you say X, you have to explain what X is. So I'm just going to keep saying Twitter. Uh, and then uh, Nick Wright going on some, you know, smarmy rant about how the media is is embarrassed that the, it, it has crowned the Bills, uh, the Super Bowl champs the last two years. It's, uh, I guess, my advice to Bills fans, uh, don't take the bait. Uh, it, what's It's just so much wasted energy. Uh, you know what they're doing. 
you know what they're after. They're trying to get you riled up, and Bills fans all too easily fall into the trap. Yeah, there was also Chris Broussard saying that the biggest problem with the Bills holding them back will be the leadership of Sean McDermott and Josh Allen, the lack of leadership. Probably um, two of the biggest leaders I've ever covered in my career. I'm 52. I'm not ancient, but I'm 52. Probably two of the most impressive leaders I have ever been around. That includes Bill Belichick. It includes Lindy Ruff. Um, does not include Dick Duran, nor does it include Rex Ryan, uh, nor does it include Cam Cameron, uh, nor uh, some of the other coaches I've covered. I'm trying to think who was after the Jets. I covered Rex with the Jets and, oh, Eric Mangini. Uh, who else? Anyways. It's been a few. Doug Marone, of course. But I'm trying to think of when I was at ESPN, who all the coaches were. But yeah, pretty impressive group, I think. Who are the best yeah. leaders you've ever been around in terms of coaches? I mean, somebody like even you want to talk about at the lower level, but super impressive, Mike McDonald. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, a lot. I think a lot of coaches at that level do an excellent job. And when you see them kind of behind the scenes, a lot of people who are good leaders and it's not necessarily because they win all the games and they win coach of the year. And I think Mike McDonald's actually a good example of this, how many of his former players come back to work for him or become friends and, and use him as a mentor. And yeah, I see that a lot with a lot of the college coaches. Um, Nate Oates was an excellent leader in getting all of those players to follow him and win and stay and not transfer um, as far as Bill's coaches, uh, Sean McDermott. I mean, I, I think that you can quibble a little bit with some of the things the Bills have done on the field, and, and certain Bills fans have expressed displeasure with things that Sean McDermott might do from a tactical standpoint on the sideline on game day. But I think the players following Sean and wanting to play for Sean, I think from his first season into this season, has been, you know, pretty lockstep in his leadership and how much they seem to follow his lead from a culture and, you know, personality standpoint. Yeah. I mean, he totally revamped a losing, like died in the wool losing culture. I mean, there was, there was losers mentality all through one bills drive. Uh, and it wasn't just the predecessors. It wasn't just Marone. It wasn't just Rex Ryan. It goes back to Jerron and Gailey and not necessarily all their fault, but the, the leadership within that building, you know, the wishy-washy executive teams and people who were taking shortcuts and trying to do things on the cheap. And it was just, I, I think that, uh, so anyway, yeah, when Chris Broussard's talking about the lack of leadership at one bills drive, that was an eye roller. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think that was kind of just a hot take from someone who really doesn't even cover the NFL and probably hasn't been much around Buffalo, certainly hasn't been around Buffalo to really know intimate details. And Nick Wright is always just trying to, you know, get attention for his takes, and he's been anti Provocateurs. Yeah, provocateurs is a good word for it. And, and I think Nick Wright sometimes has had well-thought-out points and – you know, you can kind of see the truth in his logic with some of his, even his anti-Bills rhetoric. I don't know if I agree with it here, but I do think the truth in that is that if the Bills don't have a successful season, if they don't make it to the Super Bowl or compete for a championship, 
I think the blame is going to fall on Sean McDermott as a head coach and also now the defensive coordinator and that move that was made and many will perceive he made to take, you know, more control and more power over the defense and Josh Allen being the leader of the football team and the highest paid player on the football team and celebrity quarterback and some of the things that he's gotten attention for off of the field. If the bills fail to meet expectations, the blame is going to fall on his shoulders. I think in some fair ways and unfair ways that might relate to off the field things and the whole drama that may or may not have, well, that did exist between the bills and Stefan Diggs, but may or may not been as, as real as it seemed. Josh Allen takes blame for that. He has in the past and he will, if that comes back again. So I do think in a weird way that take is correct and that their leadership is maybe the most important thing going into the bill season. Yeah, it's uh, you're right. And you mentioned, uh, Sean McDermott taking over the play calling role. So there is no more fall guy out of Leslie Frazier. Brian Dable is gone. And if things slip even a little bit and the Giants continue to look impressive as they did last year in, in Brian Dable's first season there, people are going to start wondering, well, was this Brian Dable magic? And, you know, we've been around the block a handful of times. We can see the stories coming. Uh, you know what the storylines are going to be. If this, then that, um, and Sean McDermott really has kind of laid himself bare. He's vulnerable right now because of some of the uh, moves that have been made on his coaching staff that he, uh, in a in just a couple of years, is the lone constant remaining. Of course, Brandon Bean when it comes to the roster. But if we start talking about in-game decision-making, uh, uh, lost challenges, using timeouts on defense, all these pre-snap penalties, you start thinking about discipline and then it rolls and rolls. And now all of a sudden, maybe Sean McDermott is on the hot seat a little bit, but I do think though, that he can handle that type of stuff. I think he's proven that he is a pretty uh, stern uh, insulated when it comes to his um, I'm not talking, obviously I just talk about him being vulnerable, but I mean, his, his veneer, uh, he is he stands pretty tall and getting the team through the weather situations that they did last year and getting as far as they did with DeMar Hamlin, et cetera, et cetera. He was my choice for coach of the year last year um, when I when it was time for me to vote. Uh, I couldn't. Th- I mean, I know that they fell short, but geez, um, I also want to mention I forgot with the Dolphins. I covered Tony Sperano just to kind of fill it. And that was a Bill Parcells team. Now, come on. You can't come up with a better leader than Bill Parcells. So it's not as though I haven't been around it. It's not like I haven't seen it and I'm only comparing Sean McDermott to Rex Ryan's buffoonery or Doug Marone being in over his head or Dick Duran, whatever he was, the the golem that he was. Um, no, I mean, I've, been, I've, I've seen a little bit and I, I got to put McDermott near the top of the list maybe not at the top of the list but he's certainly near it as far as i as what i'm concerned with or my my experience i should say um andy isabella i know let's just wrap that up let's just put a bow on it we we're talking about these roster changes before i went off on a tangent uh you know he was the the hot ticket heading into the game against the steelers but he plays only seven offensive snaps and five on special teams do you see that as any kind of indication about his his future making the team? I think if Andy Isabella makes the 53-man roster to start the season, or and also if he's brought in on the practice squad, I think it it has a lot to do with his kick return ability. And even though that five special team snaps doesn't sound like a lot, if that's five kick re- and punt returns, that actually is kind of a lot of usage in a preseason game. 
Um, I don't know if the Bills have the luxury of keeping a seventh wide receiver just to play special teams. They have other roster spots that are dedicated to guys that mostly only play special teams. But I do think if Andy Isabella doesn't make the 53-man roster, I think he's the 54th or 55th man on this team right now and probably will get a lot of snaps and action in this third preseason game and an opportunity to try and make this roster and possibly uh, be in that mix with either the practice squad or the very bottom of the active roster. A guy who needs to see some more reps, I believe, at kick and punt return, uh, Deontay Hardy. We haven't seen a ton of him. He was supposed to be brought in as Isaiah McKenzie's replacement, both offensively and and somewhat in special teams, if you can rely on him. And we really haven't seen it yet. And uh, that's something, I think, to uh, be uh, cognizant of as we watch this uh, last game on Saturday and heading into the season. Now we have seen coaches do some strange things when it comes to their return. Well, I don't want to say strange because they have reasons with their return men. You see people returning all throughout the preseason, then the season opener, there's somebody else who hasn't even been out there uh, in the preseason games. It's a way to maybe, uh, you know, keep your cards close to the vest, or it was a roster decision because you want, sometimes a guy needs the special teams to make the roster and you're trying some stuff out. You're already sure that you have X back there or Y or Z and okay, fine. But um, I'd like to get a little closer of a look to, to Deontay Hardy in, in some game action um, when it comes to returns. Um, yeah. I don't think that's something I think we might see it in this preseason game, but I'm not, I don't know if that's something that the Bills trust Deontay Hardy to do quite yet for week one. And some of that might just be because they have a role for him on offense and don't want him to be the primary returner. But I think that Ty Johnson, Andy Isabella, Khalil Shakir, I think there's other players that might make this team because of their return abilities. And Deontay Hardy will be more of an offensive player, at least at the start of the season. Yeah, Hardy has two fair catches in the last game, and then he had one punt return for five yards uh, in the first game. So he has been out there, uh, just not really uh, making uh, any kind of uh, impact so far. And he's also a a super experienced kick returner. He was uh, the New Orleans Saints' main guy for three seasons, from 2019 to 2021. Of course, he was an all-pro as a special teamer. Uh, 36 punt returns for 338 yards and a touchdown in 2019. So, I mean, this is a guy who, you know, he can do it, um, but he also was doing it uh, in decreasing fashion. He was uh, 11 games last year for the Saints. He only returned uh, three punts and six kickoffs. So, And and to argue against what I just said, kind of thinking about this while you were talking, um, you know, the Bills are probably going to play a lot of 11 personnel this year. I think that's the expectation with the Dalton Kincaid draft pick and what we've seen in the preseason so far. And they have two players, Trent Sherfield and Deontay Hardy, that are kind of in the mix for that third receiver that might not be on the field as much as the third receiver has been on the field in past years for the Bills. So if Deontay Hardy ends up being kind of the fourth or fourth and a half receiver in the offense, um, then he probably does need to contribute on special teams to really have value for his roster spot. So I think if I was putting together this roster, uh, you would want to start with maybe Deontay Hardy doing some of that kick and punt return. And if he makes mistakes or he has trouble catching the punts, then the Bills go to another move, which is why I think Andy Isabella or Ty Johnson or a player on the practice squad that can return kicks 
you can't do this every week, but the practice squad elevations allow the Bills to plug and play some of these guys and, and make adjustments later in the season if they don't like what they're seeing from, for example, Deontay Hardy as the primary kick returner. But unless he's going to be on the field playing offense a significant amount of snaps, I think he should be utilized as a kick returner. Otherwise, what's he really doing? I don't have the breakdown. I wish I did. So I apologize for not being totally prepared here for this point. But uh, Deontay Hardy has nine fumbles in his career. I'm not sure where those break down in terms of as a receiver versus a returner or what the situations were, um, whether they were clutch situations where they really needed something. I don't know. I'd have to go back and look at down and distance and situations in the game, whatever. But nine fumbles uh, on, uh, well, let's see. Nine fumbles in 40 games is, is a lot of fumbles. Um, he sounds like I, an excellent replacement for uh, Isaiah McKenzie. Yeah. As a fumbler. <laughs> as a receiver. As a game plug and play. play. He's a plug and play McKenzie. Special teams fumbler. Well, well, you're right. He's not a he's not a Chris Watson. Let's put it that way. Uh, he can make things happen. Wade Phillips, another coach I covered, speaking of being around uh, leaders. Um, Lindy hey, Ruff. Before, well, I mentioned him already. He's oh, a, he's okay. near the top of my list. He's I think I, if I had to rank him, I mean, I'd have to have. I mean, my top four would have to be some sort of comp. You know, Belichick, obviously number one. Parcells. I mean, we could have a discussion. I mean, Parcells. You take a look at all the different organizations that he turned around. The organizations he went to historically were bad when he took over and then he quickly flipped them into playoff teams as both a coach and as an executive uh giants jets patriots to the super bowl um didn't win the super bowl but took them to a super bowl with drew bledsoe um i said jets already uh the dolphins went from one and 15 to 11 and five um and that was the year tom brady was injured but still 11 and five from one and 15 um, anyways, um, oh, and then Lindy Ruff and Sean McDermott, I'd probably slot. I, I don't know. I, I'd have, it'd be a discussion. It'd be a good discussion. Uh, for another time, we'll do that. I think uh, and maybe this is a podcast for another time. I think you could draw a lot of comparisons between Lindy Ruff and Sean McDermott for strengths and maybe some weaknesses. And, you know, I, I, I just think Sean McDermott is having a Lindy Ruff type effect on this Bill's locker room from the time he came in. To where they've gotten to and where they haven't gotten to quite yet uh, in his coaching career. And although Lindy Ruff stayed for a long time, he was even stunned that he was able to survive all the different ownership and uh, financial challenges, all the different um, reset buttons that that organization had to hit from uh, going from the Knoxes to the Reguses, going from the Regus is to prison, uh, to NA to bankruptcy, to NHL receivership, to Tom Galasano, to um, to Terry Pagula, all of that, and he and Darcy Regeer staying for so long. But he went through cycles where the team would tune him out a little bit. He wears people out, and that's all similar to McDermott. It's similar to a lot of the names that I mentioned, uh, Bill Belichick, Parcells, all those guys, they wear you out when they're around for a long time. That's why Parcells changed teams uh, so frequently after he left the Giants. Um, 
sometimes the message can get a little just old. Uh, you know, Tom Coughlin, there's a lot of great coaches that have done things that they just wear their team out from a, a mental standpoint or their spirit or whatever. The, the message doesn't stay fresh enough. Um, so that does and happen. You, and you've written, I believe, about Lindy Ruff being, you know, now the best NHL coach to never win a cup. And it would be unfair to kind of put that on Sean McDermott right now. He hasn't coached enough seasons. But, you know, he's trending towards being in that conversation with another few seasons going as they have in the past with the great regular seasons and not winning a championship. I do think some years down the line, Sean McDermott could be a good uh, name to bring up as a best coach to never win a Super Bowl if, in fact, the Bills never win a Super Bowl in the next three, four, five years. A Marty Schottenheimer type. Could be. Could be. Uh, before we change subjects here, I want to mention, and I have been remiss not to do it more on the podcast, but uh, Tim Graham and Friends is the title sponsor once again for Team Hosmer's Swing to Cure MS, and that's a golf tournament that takes place Saturday, September 16th. Um, oh, geez. No, no, here's embarrassing. So here's typical uh, Tim Graham not being from the area. Uh, in Ohio, this would be uh, Lima. What is it in in, in here? Over in Rochester, is it Lima or Lima? I would call it Lima. If I'm incorrect on that, maybe some of our Rochesterians can correct this on Twitter, but that's Honey Falls, Lima. That's how I've always said it. Lima? Okay. Well, Ben Roethlisberger's hometown of Lima, Ohio, gets mispronounced a lot. Everybody would say Lima when they were talking about him uh, on the – uh, on the national broadcast, but let me hit, let me, let me, Tim Graham hit the reset button on this read team Hosmer swing to cure MS golf tournament, Saturday, September 16th at Lima golf and country club. That's at 7470 chase road in Lima. It is uh nine holes. You get a cart, uh, refreshments, steak dinner and desserts, uh, raffles, it is a fundraiser that is uh, close to my heart, and I'm sponsoring it again. Ninety dollars uh, for the golf, or forty-five if you just want to do the dinner uh, afterwards. And uh, there is a scramble format, closest to the pin, long drive contests. Uh, get your uh, registration in by September first, please, and um, go to teamhosmer.com team hosmer h-o-s-m-e-r.com or check my twitter feed there's a uh, uh qr code where you can use it if that's what you prefer but uh, this is uh to benefit the uh, national multiple sclerosis society the national multiple sclerosis society uh and um laurie hosmer just does uh, a, a great job with that and uh proud to sponsor it once again how about that? I think I said that was. I think I said probably ten percent of the words different once, and then said them a different way the next time. Yeah, I was thinking, you know, if we had a skilled producer, they could chop that up and put that together, and the end result would be you correctly reading all the words smooth, and even smooth as butter, right? Earlier, when I mispronounced Kingsley Jonathan as Jonathan Kingsley, uh, that could have been fixed in post-production if you will if we had no it. because that allowed us to talk about darcel marius and stephen a smith and that was a worthwhile tangent i think so i want to thank you for inspiring that uh let me just give uh, the information one more time 
teamhosmer.com. Or you can contact Lori directly. She has this on the flyer. 315-289-7705 or her assistant, Beth Brooks, at 585-733-6157 to get registered for the Swing to Cure MS Golf Tournament. Sponsored by TGAF. Um, That's a lot of letters. Yes. Jonah, your thoughts on Rick Jenneret's passing? You know, I, I kind of want to defer to you on that a little bit because you knew him a lot better personally, and I'd interacted with him very briefly uh, at times in the press box over the last few years, but I didn't travel on the road and have the same type of personal relationship that many people in the media, many colleagues in the media, and many Sabres players and even many Sabres fans and team employees and executives did. And I, I've noticed in a lot of the remembrances and – um, especially what you wrote on The Athletic, it was a lot about Rick Jenneret, the person behind the scenes, on the road, in the hotels, and even behind the microphone, commercial breaks and things like that. I, I would know him a lot more, as many fans will, for his calls and for his uh, public-facing presence. And I didn't grow up a big Sabres fan, so I don't have the same emotional attachment to some of the the earlier calls. But I do appreciate the legacy he left the iconic nature of those calls of, of plays that are remembered, I think because of the way he described them and might not be remembered in the same way or remembered at all without his voice being part of that. And probably something that I myself and many in Buffalo took for granted for a long time that he was this consistent and reliable and exciting narrator of the Sabres history and past present and not the future, but in many ways, in the past, you know, it was kind of known that he would always be there year after year. And Van Miller played a role like that for many years alongside of him. But I am looking forward to the uh, celebration on Sunday. And I think the Sabres and Rick Jenneret's family and what I'm doing here, trying to frame it as a celebration of Rick Jenneret and his career and that public facing voice and the personality that he was a lot more than a memorial or a funeral service or something like that. And I think it's going to be a very memorable moment in Sabres history for the people who are in the building and those who watch on TV. It will probably be a lot similar to what RJ Knight was when they raised his banner to the Raptors only about a year ago. But, uh, you know, I, I think it's a worthy legacy to have kind of an RJ Knight sequel in this context with a lot of legends having the opportunity to speak about him. And I think it'll be, you know, I think as far as, uh, you know, sporting events that don't count in the standings this weekend, I think this probably ranks higher than the Bills preseason game. Maybe some people don't see it that way, but I think this is a bigger sporting event, even though it's not a sports game or contest going on this weekend than uh, what the Bills are doing in Chicago. And one of the things that I talked about for my story at The Athletic, I don't know, I interviewed 15 people, maybe 20. I, I'm not sure. I interviewed a lot, uh, put out a lot of texts and phone calls, maybe twice as many that didn't get returned or came in late and, and I didn't include. So I spoke with a blur of, of people. But one of the things that kept coming up uh, was how grateful people were that Rick was able to experience essentially his wake or his funeral while he was still alive. And I'm saying that uh, tongue in cheek, and I think he'd get a kick out of it and probably agree 
and probably even made the joke himself uh, a handful of times. But it was just a year and a half ago that he was able to receive all of these tributes. Uh, and it's why a lot of the stories were able to kind of stand on their own when he died as his obituary, because we just a year and a half ago when it was RJ Knight and they raised his banner up to the Key Bank Center rafters. And then he had his final call uh, at that uh, regular season finale that um, everybody told their stories and gave their memories of the favorite call and what went into him and the plays that led up to those moments and uh, what he was like uh, away from the rink and at home, uh, what he was like on the road as a father figure and a bit of a, um, you know, a guy who kept the band together of the off ice people, myself included among that group for a while, because I actually traveled with the team. Uh, a lot of people use that phrase, do you travel with the team? And that means when the team's on the road, I go on the road too. But no, I actually was on the plane with the team for three, I think three or four years. And there is a, even though the players and the coaches are on that playing too. And Darcy Regeer used to travel to a lot of the road games. Also, we were not a part of that team. And that included Rick Jenneret, believe it or not. Uh, it includes, I think, to an extent, the athletic trainers, the equipment managers. Uh, there was a, you know, the, the broadcast director and producer, Paul Hamilton would be on those, that plane. And because when we landed, we were not allowed on the team bus. That was Darcy Regeer's line. The bus was for the team and the team only. And so we had to get a separate transportation from the airport to the hotel. Um, and we were kind of on our own and we had to stick together or else we'd get left behind. If we had a bad driver or a situation where the car didn't pick us up, the team wasn't waiting for us and they didn't care. So we, we could potentially get left behind in the city. We never did, but it was possible. And it was something that we always had to be mindful of um, leaving the arena. We had to be together and, um, and so Rick was the guy who kind of made sure that we were all on the same team and he looked out for people as much as he was a ball buster and would give you the business. He'd have to kind of sit there and take it, but he also liked it if you gave it back to him uh, because that's what you know, it was hell sports. We're on the road, a bunch of guys, right? Um, I don't know if there was ever a woman uh, on any of the planes other than the flight attendants. Um, and I know that things are much more diverse now and great and good you know it's it's good to be more diverse but this is the early 2000s and the sabers just didn't have any women in in the organization uh from a hockey standpoint so but yeah you got guys and we you know talk shit and drink beers and just like you would when you're away from home and we had each other and it was um so yeah he was he was a great guy in that regard and he yeah as you can imagine people who are like that usually you're going to have great stories and because we spent we killed a lot of time together, I guess. And those are the th stories that you hear about baseball players on the road or the relief pitchers out in the bullpen on a nightly basis. When you spend a lot of time together alone, away from your families, you have to a rely on each other, amuse each other, uh, support each other. People go through things. Uh, I told the story on the athletic about the night I threw my back out and it's, it wasn't just, I was hurt. I threw it. I was almost crippled. I was crying to walk. And uh, he took care of me. He made sure that he, he drove my rental car uh, from uh, Edmonton to Calgary so I could return it. He told me to get in the back seat. He got me the 222 pills in Canada and took my bags and every. And he was like, just don't worry about it. 
and he didn't bust my balls. And that's when you knew Rick was really taking care of you is when he stopped busting your balls because you need, you, he, if you needed help, he was going to be there. Loyalty, once you earned it from Rick, you had it. But um, so I know I didn't tell any fun stories in there with that little um, bit of work, but that's, that's what he was uh, to me. And to a lot to a lot of people, and that includes to Rip Simonic and George Babcock and Joe Pinter, the director, and Eric Grossman, the producer, and Danny Gare. Oh, Danny Gare was another one who was with it. Now that was a weird one. And Jim Lorenz, because even though Danny Gear played, his number is in the rafters, 50 goals, the whole thing. Jim Lorenz was on the team that played for the Stanley Cup. I mean, he Jim Lorenz is his name is on the Stanley Cup from when he was with the Boston Bruins. He they we weren't part of the team. They were I was kind of one of them and they had to, I always felt weird about that, but they welcomed me in. Danny Gare was amazing in that regard. So was Jim Lorenz. Hey man, let's go to this place. Hey, have you ever been to Edmonton before? No, I haven't been. All right. Well, you come with us. We got this place. We're going to go. And we'd sit there and have a few beers and just be unnoticed. And, and uh, it was anyways, that was, that was the communal spirit that Rick made sure to, um, foster and also i think protect uh as long as i was around the team and then we started uh, after the lockout we started flying commercial um because the games were getting so crazy uh they were hard to cover on deadline this is when the sabers are coming back from three goals down in the third period and whatever and we couldn't rush out of the arena for the for the airport and still write a good enough story and so we made the, I, I made the decision. It was up to me. And I went to Howard Smith, the executive editor. I said, I'd rather fly commercial. It's just better for our product. And then I stopped. But even then I was still part of that kind of that road brotherhood that John Vogel was uh, absorbed into and uh, some of the other guys. And it was anyways, it was, it was special to be a part of that group. And and it was special because of Rick Jenneret and how it went from him down to uh Jim Lorenz and Danny Gare and everybody. Anyways, it's, 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 it's special and it's flattering to be a part of a group that really takes care of each other like that. They saved my ass a handful of times and I think hopefully vice versa, they would, they would say the same, but um, that's, that's my, my recollection of Rick Jenneret. Yeah. I just wanted to mention because uh, I, I miss some names and if, if you are planning on going uh, to the uh, Rick Jenneret tribute at Key Bank Center Sunday, five o'clock, um, I mentioned some of the names earlier, but I missed them. Uh, the Sabres posted a thing earlier today that uh, Kevin Adams will be there, as will uh, Marty Baran, Joe Bowen, Dan Dunleavy, Danny Gare, Don Granado, Dave Hannon, Jim Lorenz, Brad May, James Patrick, Rob Ray, Lindy Ruff, Rip Simonic, and um, uh, Brian Duff is going to moderate. And the thing that works out well for this is the Sabres uh, alumni golf tournament is Monday. So these people were in town and much like Dominic Hasek, who happened to be in town last week. And I was able to uh, tell that story uh, that he was able to go to the RJ Memorial uh, down at uh, alumni Plaza. Um, anyways, a lot of people usually in the summer, sometimes the things happen with hockey, it doesn't get the, the attention or the love that it that it deserves because everybody's scattered everybody's off on vacation and uh or they don't live here they're back in the european players are back there or everybody's up in canada or in banff or whistler or wherever the hell but uh there are people who, who are going to be around for rj and that's pretty cool jonah i wanted to ask you about ub soccer the women go to ohio state and win 
And I wouldn't think anything of it other than, oh, that's pretty cool. UB beat Ohio State. But then you tweeted out a story uh, at WIVB.com that really kind of resonated. It's the first time UB's beaten Ohio State at anything. Well, yeah, that's something we had to look back in the records. Uh, the sports information staff at UB was very helpful, especially because there are sports that UB used to play that they don't play anymore. And some of those all-time history media guides aren't really online or are hard to find online. But it was looked back, and at least in a team sport, you know, UB had never beaten Ohio State. And UB, um, in different sports, has beaten teams from the Power Five conferences, major conferences. But there's there's a different level. You know, UB football won at Rutgers a few years ago when Rutgers, I think they were winless that season. They might have only had one win. Um, Ohio State's on a different level. I mean, maybe football and basketball is a little different than women's soccer. But this Ohio State soccer team, they finished last year in the RPIs at 31 and made it to the second round of the NCAA tournament. So if they're not a top 25 team, they're, they're kind of a top 35 team. And UB also played a nationally ranked Pitt team close with a 2-1 home loss to open the season. And UB itself was 31 in the or 38 in the RPIs at the end of last year and made the NCAA tournament and had a close loss to that very same pit team. So, you know, Buffalo women's soccer is kind of on the verge of maybe being close to that top 25 level and close to that win a game in the NCAA tournament level. And they're favored again to win the MAC conference, the Mid-American conference. And this is with a team that lost they replaced 10 players on the roster, either seniors that graduated, and a lot of them were fifth-year graduate students. And that's a lot of turnover with a few local players replacing some of the graduate players were local players. And they do seem to have – Coach Sean Burke has a very consistent program of restocking and not really missing a beat. And this team that maybe could have been in a bit of a reloading phase uh, seems to be as good as last year's team, which was maybe the best in school history, and if not – slightly better because a win like this at Ohio State is the best win by this program in history and better than anything that this uh, team did last year when they had maybe the best season in school history. Well, when you talk about the difference between an Ohio State and a Rutgers, um, I had to go look it up here, but I think that this is, uh, it goes to show that Ohio State is really good at everything. There are some schools that are good in one thing. They're a basketball school and there may be one double A or FCS in, um, in football, or they don't even have a carry a baseball program, et cetera, et cetera. And I tried to, I was thinking like, who would be the best? Well, there is a, there's a trophy that is put out every year by the national association of collegiate directors of athletics, the NACTA directors cup. And it is the number one athletic program in division one, two, three. Now, Ohio State has never won it, but it has finished second three times, third twice, fourth three times, and in the top 10, another seven times. That just goes to show that from top to bottom, Ohio State is, is really impressive. And they're on another level, as you say, because they fund their athletic programs. Now, Stanford wins it a lot. Um, you have a lot of the a lot of sports that you get out of the West coast, like beach volleyball, um, baseball that can be played year round better than it can be in Ohio. Uh, there's all kinds of things that happen out West that you can pick up some points in the, in that NACTA cup, but Ohio state, I mean, that's beating Ohio state is a big deal. No matter the sport, I don't care if it's rifle rowing, uh, bear trapping. I, I don't know, whatever the hell they have else they might have out there, uh, pistol whipping, uh, 
what 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 would be some other um online porn watching i don't know what other events can be out there uh for the american folks um uh fortnight if you can beat ohio state it's something mullet competition i do know well i, I wanted to make the distinction too it maybe it's a little bit different in men's and women's basketball and football but they won at ohio state and there's reasons why in a football or basketball game a football team get paid you know well over a million dollars and a basketball team could get several hundred thousand dollars to go to these games and be assumed that they will lose. And there's difficulties maybe with the officiating or the crowd or just the overall environment. It's probably less so in women's soccer. And I don't think this was at all a guarantee game where the Buffalo team was paid, uh, you know, to kind of be fodder for the Ohio state team, but still on the road, probably not the best officiating situation that uh, the Buffalo women's soccer team wants to face in a road game and still was able to come out with that result is more impressive by a bit than it would have been if this was a neutral field tournament or a, perhaps a home game, or even though Pitt was ranked, I don't know. Maybe that's equal. Maybe winning at Ohio state is about as equal as it could have been as beating Pitt at home would have been two days earlier. University at Buffalo football team opens its season September 2nd at Wisconsin. Speaking of big programs, not quite Ohio State, but still, that's a big that's a big one. And then uh, they return home for a couple of games against the much more digestible uh, Fordham and Liberty. I was going to give the nicknames, but I don't know the Ford uh, Fordham Rams, Fordham Rams, Liberty Flames. Is that correct? Um, no, no, no. It's to, when we don't know the nicknames; those are probably teams UB should beat, right? That's pretty. Well, that's no, no, a, Liberty Liberty's been good. Liberty's been right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Liberty Liberty's has a, has a good football program. They actually have quite a history uh, of sending a lot of players to the NFL. I don't know about a lot, but for a for a for a program at size and and it's also hasn't been around for very long. But yeah, Liberty's Liberty's legit. Um, but anyway, uh, Wisconsin, September second. Um, what do we know about UB, or what do we want to say about these guys uh, as their uh, as their depth chart comes into focus here over these last uh, couple weeks of the summer? Well, they have a lot of key players back, specifically the quarterback, Cole Snyder, who has been on the preseason award watch list for the Manning Award and the Johnny United's Golden Arm Award. And just being an experienced quarterback that played a full season, he's the third quarterback in UB history to pass for 3,000 yards, and he's the first to be coming back the season after doing so. so I don't know if he's right. I don't know if he's, the best quarterback UB's ever had are going to break Joe Licata's records or be an NFL quarterback where previous, you know, UB quarterbacks, Drew Willie did make it to the NFL. Tyree Jackson's in the NFL as a receiver, but I don't know if he's better than them, but he's near that echelon and coming back. Sean Dolak at a linebacker, Mark, Marcus Fuqua at safety was a third team All-American. These guys are all back. So it's a season with rather high expectations. However, with that said, UB was picked third in the division in the preseason poll by the coaches and isn't really considered the favorite to win the MAC, but seems to be a team that could contend. And this game at Wisconsin in the first week of the season next Saturday, the last time I looked, they're that's a 27 and a half point spread, four touchdown underdogs UB is. Um, on the road against a Big Ten team that's ranked number 19 in the country, I think UB is one in 14 all time against ranked opponents, and that one win was in the MAC championship game on a neutral field against Ball State. 
They're one in 11. I think the number is against big 10 teams. And that one win is that Rutgers win we talked about earlier. So UB has never won a game like this. Uh, and I don't know if being four touchdown underdogs, how much of a chance you give them to win that game. Got to bring the soccer it, team in to give them a pep talk. Well, maybe, maybe they can do some of that, but if it's a competitive game in the second half, if it's a one score loss, or I think the number of points under that, you know, the number of points that UB is able to cover that spread by could be a harbinger of how good this season is. And then UB has that game against Florida that they should win and a Liberty game that is really, I think going to be uh, not make or break, but go a long way towards determining their overall win count and bowl eligibility and things like that. I, I think this is a UB team that could get to, you know, eight or nine wins by the end of the season, but some of these games early on might uh, change that potential and change that prediction if they don't uh, show well at Wisconsin and if they don't take care of business in those first two home games coming up after that. Yeah. Pretty cool schedule this year. I mean, it's the usual Mid-American Conference, but they have Louisiana and Wisconsin on the road. Those are, I, I dig that. They got their two, what I like to call preseason games against Fordham and Liberty. Liberty test. You're right. How good is Liberty this year? I, I should know that. I mean, I'm going off, I'm going off reputation. I'm not going off really what I know. Stall while I look up Liberty. Yeah, I mean, I know Liberty was very good a couple of years ago when they beat UB in the first game of this season. Hugh Freeze is the coach. I don't know, especially with the transfer portal now, I really don't know if they've gotten better or worse, but I think it's a team that you know, should be very competitive. And, and if UB does win that game, it should be uh, considered a good win for them. And I think Louisiana is another team that's been bowl eligible many years, and that could be a good road win for UB. And if they come out of the non-conference portion of the season at 3-1, and one, I think it's a very good position for UB to be in. They finished 7-6 and six last year, which for Mo Linguis, he's the first UB coach in the Division One era to have a winning season in his second season. And winning that bowl game and getting – a you know a plus 500 record to finish the season and bringing back a lot of those key players uh portends maybe for taking another step and getting to eight nine even 10 wins which would be tie the school record however and there were reasons last year's schedule only had five home games and it had i think it was a little they lost at home against a division one uh, an fcs school holy cross which was a difficult team but you know you schedule those games those are buy games for ub and they're trying to buy wins as is the same as this game against Fordham. This year's schedule is more balanced. They got six home games. They got more home games earlier in the season. It portends well, even though it's not an easy schedule, it portends better for UB to have more wins going into the end of the season than they did a year ago with, you know, a younger team. And, and I think there's there's a lot of reasons to think UB could have a better season and a very successful season but I don't know if it's really expected that they'll reach all of that potential at season's end. Yeah, let me eat a little crow here for making fun of Liberty because, uh, again, you mentioned Hugh Freeze, who is now the head coach at Auburn, so he was good enough to get that job. They were as high as 19 in the AP poll last year, finished out of the standing or out of the uh, rankings, and then in 2020 they were 17th. But they've been 8-5 and five each of the last two years. They were 10-1 and one in 2020, 8-5 and 6-6 six and six going backwards when Turner Gill was their coach in their first year as Division 1A. So they've been pretty good. They're in Conference USA now. Uh, Jamie Chadwell's their coach from Coastal Carolina. They've, you know, they moved up from independent status. Uh, so um, let's also take a look at some of their uh, – oh, no All-Americans. Well, I was gonna Jamie look at Chadwell, 
he, he coached the Coastal Carolina team that played here as a ranked team right. two years ago, and they had a lot of good players, NFL prospects on their team. That's what I didn't know is whether, you know, you Liberty's in a rebuilding year where they lost a lot of players and are maybe a year or two away from getting the talent to replace those players. I think Jamie Chadwell with the job he did down at Coastal Carolina probably is going to do well at, at keeping that program moving along. So that's, you be getting that game at home is good for them. But that, that's probably a game where I, I, they'll probably be home underdogs in that game, I would think. Liberty Biberty. That actually is probably the best home game. Let's see. Liberty at home, Central Michigan. Nobody cares about the directional Michigan schools. I don't care how good they are. There's something about all the Michigan schools that just are like a dial tone to me. Uh, Ohio in November, and then Eastern Michigan. Oh, Bowling Green. I miss Bowling Green uh, in October. So let me read off the home schedule again. Fordham, Liberty, Central Michigan, Bowling Green. No, yeah, Bowling Green, Toledo, Ohio, Eastern Michigan. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven home. God damn it, Timothy. All right, let me read this again. Let me get it right. Fordham and Liberty in September. Central Michigan and Bowling Green in October. These are back-to-backs, by the way. Then they're on the road for two, and then Ohio, and then Eastern Michigan. So six home games. One thing about the UB schedule that you like from a fan perspective is four Saturday afternoon home games before the middle of October when you know the weather should be better, especially for those September games. Uh, compared to what the schedule was like last year and, and can sometimes shake out to, it's a good, you know, fan experience schedule, at least through the first uh, four of those six home games. Yeah, I was having trouble because I was I was taking pride or I was I was enjoying this beautiful bit of marketing from University at Buffalo. Um, I'm guessing because there's no beer sponsor on these that somebody at UB uh, went to the local drinking establishments and gave out these coasters um, with some advertisements and some QR codes and all the different things, but it's got the schedule on it, which I'm keeping here as my handy schedule for this year, although I might need to rethink this based on what just happened. But it's really hard to maybe decipher from, unless you, in, from any kind of distance, the blue ink from the black ink, blue being a home game, black being a road game. And um, so anyways... Anyways, pretty cool idea because usually it's Budweiser or Yingling or whoever, and you just uh, the bars take whatever they get for free as their coasters, and smart. So now UB, everybody's like, oh yeah, here's the schedule. UB's one of those sports. I think it's like the Bisons too. Sometimes the season goes by, you think you want to go to a game, and before you know it, you've missed the home games or the summer. Like ah, damn it, you know I should have gotten out to the Bisons more because you don't. It's not on top of mind is something to do. So having these coasters, especially at a place like Elmo's where I picked this up, which is a mile away from UB stadium. Imagine you look at this and be like, Oh hell, I'm going to go to UB Fordham tomorrow. Take the kids. Well, and it's important. It's important for the football schedule when they're not conflicting with bills games and even Sabres games, when you get to those midweek match matching games later in the season and the basketball season as well, I think, uh, the more times UB or any of the colleges have the night to themselves, the more likely they might get a casual fan interested in the game because few people seem to choose UB sporting events over a Bills game. And even like the Saturday before a Bills game, sometimes I think if it's a home game, affects the crowd. Let me know, though, when you 
see one of those coasters for the basketball schedule because they're a little slow on putting that out this year at UV. So I don't know if the coaster is where they're going to break that news. You talk about all the different ways that we have to compete in this business. Um, you know, the athletics competing with the Buffalo news and WGR is insiders are competing with channel two's insiders and four has it's competition. Matt, Hey, everybody's trying to bring down Matt Beauvais. Um, you know, Joe Biscali is the cock of the walk, you know, but when we have to start competing with coasters, I'm getting out of the business, which yeah. may be very close. If I have to start refreshing my coasters to uh, see what, if any news is going to break. And uh, we can't compete with refrigerator magnets either. How, how, how about this though? Well, now, wait a minute, actually, let me, let me take a step back. I'm thinking of, my main competition in this regard, if news did start to break on coasters, I think I'd have an advantage. Because you like the coast? No, because I'm going to see the coaster before other people see the coaster based on my exposure to these coasters. Yeah. Do they come out at like 1201 AM? I am where these coasters get placed generally, whether it be at Amherst Pizza and Ale House, Elmo's. There's this new wing nuts down the street, Duff's, etc. Well, how about that? I see wing nuts is a new UB sponsor. I don't know if that means anything. You know, the first thing that popped in my head is that means we might get wing nuts in the media food at some of these games, which I'm in favor of. Okay. I dig that. I still haven't had them. Have you had them? Yeah, I had them when Wingnuts was in the Knights of Columbus. I used to get them. Yeah, I know I want to be a hipster here, but I think before the hype, before I thought Wingnuts was anything that people went out of their way to get, it was just a, a wing spot that was right in the same building where I'd play basketball and you get them. And, you know, they're breaded, so they're a little different. It was a little bit of a different style, and, and I would enjoy getting them. But I would have to be going to the Knights of Columbus for – basketball or some other reason i wouldn't really go out of my way to go in there to purchase wing nuts and i don't know if i've had wing nuts wings at any of their new locations since they left the knights of columbus but it's good, in it's that, a good uh, quality wing i will say that i know that you know where it is but i'm saying it just for the people who are out there listening who may be familiar with the the getsville area and where wondering what the hell we're talking about but it is in the old santoras that it was across the street from the marriott hotel uh, that's where the wing nuts is, is now. Uh, so also a place where you would want coasters for UB sports, the anchor bar, not a popular spot for locals, but you'd want to put them in that anchor bar on maple. Um, all the different bars that are around UB slap some coasters down, get the locals, get the locals apprised of your schedule. Santoras was traditionally a UB sponsor, so that makes a lot of sense that Wingnuts has moved in on that territory. Jonah, anything else you want to add that we didn't talk about? I think that's about it. I mean, big week for the Bills, big preseason week, and then we get to that much-anticipated cut-down day to 53-man roster, and then I don't know what we're going to do with ourselves after that because uh, the regular season is all downhill from the preseason intrigue. It should be noted that uh, one of us is wearing makeup. 
and we were going to put a challenge out there uh, to guess who is wearing makeup and where it is. Now, I'm not saying that to be uh, cheeky. Uh, I'm saying it because I'm not saying it's like, you know, guess the body part. It is somewhere that is on the, that is visible. So if you can guess who's wearing it and where it is, um, what can I do? Oh, you know what I have? I have blue sky um, invitation codes. Hmm. I have four of them stored up. Maybe I'll give out to, to the prefer first person who can tell me who has makeup on and where. Um, and you, you might have to be specific if we're going to maybe break a tie. I don't know. We'll I, I think you just have to be correct. You have to be able to read our faces and uh, correctly discern who's wearing makeup, what type of makeup, what part of the face is made up and you know, how exactly this all was produced for the magic of podcast. I'm actually getting, I mean, I, I'm not trying to throw wrinkles on the um, the process here. You'll have to maybe, I'm not sure what the correct body part is. Like, what would be the answer? I mean, we both know what it is, but how do you, what's the answer? What's the, what's the right answer? And you obviously don't give it here, but. Well, you're going to have to know your makeup. You're going to have to know lipstick, you know, eyelash makeup, eyebrow makeup. Right, all the different types of makeup and, and their different uses in order to correctly answer. Maybe rather question. than where it is, let's say what type, what make, what is the makeup? Yeah, what what makeup was used? You're gonna have to know the lingo and know what you're looking for. It's like watching all 22 film and being able to tell us what you're seeing. You're gonna have to watch this video and tell us what you're seeing from a makeup standpoint. And a lot of people watch a lot of hours of video online about makeup. So somebody who is in that frame of mind, I think is going to be able to watch this video and, and get this all correct. All right. I'm, I'm looking at us here and I'm wondering if you can actually, I think that if you studied it enough and you saw the right clue, you could guess what it is. Well, let's not give it away, but I do, I empathize, but I also, you know, I think this is an interesting aspect for our audio only listeners that really have no right. way of even seeing. <laughs> oh, that's true. I didn't think of that. But they're imagining now what type of makeup it could be. And if somehow somebody's perceptive enough to maybe guess correctly just from the sound of our voice and the way we're describing this, if you're able to, you know, be the makeup detective there and, and put that together, then that's you true. Get, now you know, you and speaking of Rick Jenneret, he that. was he was often accused of just doing the TV call and not giving out the score enough or how much time's left in the period for the radio listeners. So yeah, we in honor of Rick Jenneret, we totally forgot that we are audio only at uh for a for a good portion of our listeners. Um anyways, that's a good uh, so point. I mean, you're an audio broadcaster for 20, 30 years, however many years that was for Rick Jenneret, and then you have to go on TV, you have to learn makeup very late in the game. And I think he was able to do that and master that as a star of television and radio. I should have asked, uh, I should have asked about the makeup. I didn't in my, in my questions. I talked to uh, uh, his, his stage manager, and, who I've never seen interviewed, by the way, uh, and his statistician for the story, the people who sat next to him 
because Rob Ray's been down between the between the benches for a few years now. So the the, the two people with Rick Jenneret for every game were his game manager and a statistician, and they told me some good stories. But I, I make up, make up might have been a good one. All right, let's wrap this up. Uh, Jonah, thanks for this. Uh, and thank you to everyone out there for listening. Hey, uh, like us, rate us, grade us, subscribe, do all the things, please, because the more subscribers we get, actually, the more things unlock in terms of features that we can do on YouTube or on the various uh, streaming platforms. So um, help us out by uh, clicking whatever it is you can click uh, to uh, to let people know that uh, you're listening and uh, to get uh, Tim Graham and friends brought to you by CTBK rushed right to your platform of choice. Uh, thanks to everybody out there for your support. And uh, if you can, please uh, some, uh, support Team Hosmer's Swing to Cure MS uh, in the golf tournament. Uh, that information's out there. And uh, have a good weekend. CTBK is more than just a full-service accounting firm. They are one team with an innovative approach that takes on each new challenge with collaborative problem-solving skills to provide creative solutions for their clients. Based right here in Western New York, CTBK is a champion for your business and our community. Additionally, CTBK goes beyond tax and attest services by offering a wide array of consulting and outsource solutions tailored to meet the unique needs of your business, allowing you to focus on your operational and long-term strategic goals. Whether you're a large corporation, a small business, or somewhere in between, the team at CTBK is determined to help you succeed. Visit ctbk.com or call 716-630-2400, 716-630-2400 to learn how CTBK's one-team approach can work for you. we